Hello, and welcome back to the Daily Zen Podcast. Without any further ado, my name is Charlie Ambler, and uh, if you've listened before, the last time I recorded one of these was uh, two months ago, and I had been planning on doing one a week, but um, I had a busy summer with my other thing that I do, and uh, I moved from New York to New Orleans uh, because New York was starting to uh, impede on my spiritual and mental health, I think. Um, but anyway, I finally got settled in, and uh, I'm happy down here and have my own place, which is great. Uh, have peace and quiet. And I'm excited to continue the podcast. So, um, a few weeks ago, I asked people to suggest some topics. And I'm going to address those. There's too many for me to do all of them, but I'll pick a few that seem to make the most sense. Um, see where a good place to start. Um, someone says the plan towards world peace, and then they said peace now. <laughs> um, I uh, might as well start here because I'm hoping to use this podcast as an opportunity to address ideas that I think are too difficult to address um, using the brevity of Twitter. So um, I see a lot of people who tend to conflate the idea of personal peace and, you know, sort of inward peace with um, this extremely idealistic idea of world peace or external peace um, that we sort of have as a cultural narrative, but we've never really had um, in human cultures, you know? I mean, there's never really a period of peace at the end of the day when you have a large group of people. There's always conflicts, whether they're violent conflicts or not. Um, there's always outward conflicts, there's always inward conflicts. And I think people become sort of the same way we become obsessed by these grandiose ideas of enlightenment or what have you. People become obsessed by the idea of um, you know, peace or the ending of world suffering or um, the eradication of war or the eradication of poverty. Um, and I see those ideological quests as being inherently flawed in that um, there's nothing about the natural world that tells us that we will ever not have things like death, dying, starvation, poverty, war suffering. Um, and there's also nothing about life in general that would infer that we don't need those things um, to counterbalance what we want more of, which is, you know, peace, prosperity, things like that. Um, there's no way to really engineer exclusively what we want. And one of the core tenets of Buddhism is that what we want holds us prisoner. You know, attachment is the root of our suffering. And so long as we want peace and we want 
prosperity and we want this and we want that, there will be war, there will be poverty, etc. You know, the more you, one strives for oneself, um, the more one separates oneself from others. And, you know, the more someone wishes to be peaceful, the more often they retreat from the world and um, prevent themselves from making some sort of contribution. So I think it's more important to, instead of thinking about things in grandiose uh, superlative terms, to, you know, think about this quote-unquote plan toward world peace as being just as delusional as the plan for you to make a million dollars tomorrow or the plan for you, you know, to have sex with lots of hot chicks or the plan for you to, um, I don't know, have a thousand friends or some sort of other delusional goal that um, we like to think about them abstractly um, but when they're actually implemented or attempted to be implemented, sometimes they cause more chaos precisely because they're, you know, against nature. So instead of obsessing over the idea of peace, I think we should try to find something beyond the idea of it um, and look inside of, you know, just by looking inside of the self. Uh, that's what meditation does effectively is you're turning your attention inward, you're cultivating a peace of mind just as an individual. And in that practice and in that process, because your reality is wholly your own creation, about, you know, I mean, if you're, when you're dead, your ability to perceive your reality as it is right now goes away. So if you take that reality and find a way to cultivate some sort of lasting peace within it, um, you are creating a type of world peace. That's not meant to be misinterpreted as a sort of spiritual narcissism. It's more so sort of this different logic, this different way of seeing things where we're not soul agents having an impact on the world, um, whether that's actionable or ideological. We are, you know, part and parcel of the world, in and of the world, an expression of what it is. And we, in our idealism and our idealizations about the world, tend to abstract it to the point of um, pure fantasy. And that creates this rift between nature and reality that harms us. Um, it, it's oddly the same sort of idealism that wants there to be world peace is the same sort of idealism that can create total war in a weird way if you think about it. Um, not something to mull over. Everyone I think right now for some reason is so obsessed with these grandiose um, political gestures and idealistic proclamations that we're neglecting ourselves. The same way that when organized religion came along, you know, early Christians and um, this has happened. With, I mean, this happened with Buddhism. This has happened with Hinduism and Islam and everything. As soon as the the grand proclamations and the worldwide idealizations come along, um, people forget the individual spiritual quest, which is the whole point of religion to begin with. 
So if you want peace, you know, find your way back onto that path of personal practice, personal discipline, um, compa personal compassion, you know, uh, exemplify what you wish you could see on a mass scale. Someone says, next topic, ways to be aware of internal negative reactions to everyday life. It's one thing to change what you say, it's another to change thought. That's a great, that's a great topic. I think it sort of, these always, for some reason, seamlessly flow from one to the next. Um, when we sit in meditation, we spend the 20 minutes or however much time um, we spend meditating, reflecting on a blank slate, effectively. You're sitting, you're not thinking of anything in particular, but your mind functions on its own accord, and things come about. And your job is to observe them without ideally reacting to them. And that's sort of a skill that you cultivate over time. And so, you know, in your day-to-day -day life, when you're having quote-unquote negative reactions to things, uh, that's just a, that's a natural response that the mind has to stimuli. And judging the reaction as positive or negative isn't really going to help you so much as observing it neutrally, using it as fodder for accurate observation. Maybe what you're experiencing is, you know, objectively something harmful or something you're critical of, and that's okay. It's okay to be critical. It's okay to be negative. There's this weird conflation of spirituality with pure positivity, um, which is sort of like a marketing gimmick that I think came out of the 60s. But um, the, the best way to be aware of your internal responses to external events is to cultivate the mindfulness that comes from meditation. You sit, you close your eyes, you breathe, you focus on an anchor, whether it's a mantra or your breathing, or, you know, ideally something that's not conceptual. So... Um, a sound or the breath or, you know, the sound of the birds or something, not like a thought about something. Um, and when you do this, you can kind of, you kind of are building this foundation of mind that's quote unquote, no mind where you're not actively thinking, you're actively sort of overseeing what your mind does when it's left to its own devices. Um, and what the mind does when it's left to its own devices is sorts through all the crap that's in it and starts to sort of just undergo this natural self-filtration process. And in doing that, you know, in giving yourself X amount of minutes each day to do that, you're developing a, a certain armor against um, the intrusion of... Um, various sort of, I don't know, like thought viruses. Um, not that you're preventing yourself from experiencing certain things or seeing certain things, but you're understanding the limits of your own perception. And you're training your mind to see that what it believes is often completely wrong. Um, that what it sees is often not what it's really seeing. And that if it jumps too quickly to conclusions, 
uh, without really thoroughly observing and kind of um, calmly navigating, it's going to fall into delusion, which will create more suffering and more chaos like we discussed. So, yeah, changing what you say is one thing. It's easy to do that, obviously. And that's, you know, the most of what most people do. That's the, the end of it for most people. And um, changing thought comes not from outwardly expressing your ideas about spirituality or about um, ideas or about positivity or negativity, but by sitting allowing that reflective process to, um, to happen to your mind. Uh, the same way you run a dishwasher for 30 minutes, you know, in the evening, you run your meditation practice, consider it, think of it as like a program, you know, if you want to reduce the brain to a sort of computer-like functionality. Um, think about, you know, you're running that program. I run it for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening, Ideally, sometimes only once a day, but usually twice a day. And every time you do that, you know, a certain degree of cleansing and filtration occurs that your mind is naturally prone to that um, perfect process. That's a natural process. You know, the thoughts that we are actively thinking that come from the external world, that come from other people, that come from our lesser inclinations, those aren't quite as natural. Those are more, those kind of are more out there in the ether. Those have to be forced upon us and contemplated. But in contemplating, you know, just the mind itself and just sitting and not thinking, existing and being conscious without thinking actively, the mind works on its own the way, you know, a plant absorbs sunlight. And it's pretty remarkable and you'll find, you know, all of this talk and all of the readings and all of the whatever um, are significantly less impactful than a simple daily meditation practice. Um, it doesn't really have to be something that you can put into words. It's just an experience that you intuitively are, know how to do. Uh, the Greeks talked about this where, you know, the, the knowledge and the wisdom of what is actually philosophy is already in you. Um, and the practice of scholarship or Socratic dialect or whatever it is, is intended to get it out, you know, to, to uncover it. You're not acquiring wisdom, you're uncovering it. Um, so when we're acquiring knowledge and we're acquiring thoughts and we're acquiring concepts, you know, we assume that wisdom is the same way or that spiritual understanding is the same way, that we have to acquire it from an outside source, when in reality it's so essential that we're uncovering it. We're just removing the barriers between ourselves and it. It's actually very simple, which is nice. And anyone can do it, which is cool. You know, you don't even have to know, you don't even have to know how to read. You don't have to speak any specific language. Um, it's truly this transcendental sort of process. And it's very special for that reason. How much time? 15 minutes. My cat is going crazy because I'm in the house alone and I'm just talking. And she thinks that I'm talking to her, I think. So if you hear her, I apologize. There she is. <laughs> uh, okay.
perfect segue from that. Someone says, I would like to know how the meditation retirement has affected you. And, oh, oh, I see. This is like um, translated. So this person means, what are the, what are the after effects of meditation? Um, I've discussed that a fair amount, I think, in the other podcast. Maybe I haven't, though. Maybe it's too... I thought it was so basic that I didn't talk about it, but, um, you know, the most simple effects are um, a certain degree of heightened focus, a, a sort of dulling down of the reaction to stimuli. So, you know, it's easier to stop and think before reacting to things, whether it's an angry response or an exuberant response. Uh, it just generally sort of calms you down. And a heightened awareness and an appreciation for, I think, the what I call the ethereal world, which I think is sort of these incredible, strange little moments where you, you know, maybe you see the wind blowing a branch, or you look into an animal's eyes, or, you know, you're with someone you love, and you sort of just can, without overthinking it or overanalyzing it, just experience this bliss, you know, this feeling of pure um, contentment, which is sort of the apotheosis of living. I mean, we live, you know, to, you know, hopefully experience those little moments of gratitude for life. There's a lot of times where we don't feel that, where we feel burdened or overwhelmed. Um, and when I, when I really started taking my meditation practice seriously, I started experiencing a lot more of those little transcendent moments where I'm fully, I feel fully um, alive and engaged with life. And that doesn't mean that my problems are gone. It doesn't mean that I'm not an asshole sometimes, you know. It doesn't mean that I don't have a lot of things to learn or that I've achieved any sort of semblance of what one might call enlightenment because that's non-existent, you know. Um, so the after effect of meditation over time is that enlightenment consists of those little tiny moments where you feel you understand. Not that you know, but that you understand and that you are confident and content with that understanding. Um, and that's really fun. I think it adds a certain degree of fun to life. When I skip it, I notice its absence almost immediately. So. Next topic. Someone says, how we trick ourselves into believing that heaven is somewhere else. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that heaven is somewhere else and that it isn't. That's one of those conceptualizations that we rely on to comfort ourselves, but we use it as sort of an external comforter. And I guess that's kind of what you're getting at, where, you know, this idea that heaven is out there somewhere and we can enter it or acquire its qualities or something is, of course, a one of the delusions that we use to make ourselves feel more... Contented, which is the real, you know, the real heaven is the contentment that comes from 
hoping that there's a heaven later on. Uh -huh. I think that's kind of the core disconnect that modern people have experienced with religious practices. Um, you know, the people who people who formed ancient religions and even later religions, you know, and, and later organized iterations of religion, major religions, they weren't stupid and they weren't malicious. And um, there's this weird atheistic, you know, dislike of Christianity or Islam or Judaism or, you know, other religions. Um, but, you know, the idea is that it's sort of the script that you can use to induce yourself into these spiritual types of consciousness. Um, but it requires a certain type of quote-unquote faith, um, which is this, effectively, the desire to experience that spiritual life. And if the, all of the nonsense becomes, overcrowds that, there's not really any use to it. So, you know, if, if the fundamental basis of your spiritual life is that you wish to experience, you know, what it actually has to offer, which is a certain degree of peace, quiet, reflection, truth, um, closeness with nature, etc. You will find that if you practice actively, whether you're praying, um, you know, preaching to a congregation, doing community service, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's about, I think, just the intention to connect with something higher than the physical and something higher than the human, uh, which, which exists. I mean, you know, we emerged from the universe, which is a much larger power than we are. And regardless of God or whatever people, um, whatever um, sort of ideas people want to believe about religion, the fundamental inward nature of it is the same for everybody. And it's more and more palpable, I think, the more you practice and the more you meditate. So um, things that, you know, used to sound crazy to me or even superstitious, um, religious concepts and spiritual concepts, I now feel I, I understand after a certain amount of time meditating, uh, including the idea of God and heaven and things like that. I mean, they're, these are spiritual abstractions. They're not intended to be um, used as like science, you know what I mean? Like they're not intended to be used in the way that science is used. They're intended to be used as, well, I already said, like scripts for navigating the, what, what exists above the real. You know, it's a completely different thing. We use science to navigate the real for utilitarian and pragmatic ends. We use spirituality to navigate what we can't see, what we can't know, but what we wish to understand. I think that's the key thing. Um, I'll do one more. This is great. There's a lot, and so I will be spending more time recording these because um, I'm going to get back to recording one a week, so I'll answer the rest of these next time. But... Someone, Patty Everett, who's one of uh, a, a very kind and thoughtful and uh, responsive follower of the Daily Zen, 
asks, is cleverness anathema to kindness? Um, and I'd say, as someone who loves screwing around and joking, um, you know, I was raised Jewish, and we, I think the Jewish people have a wonderful uh, tradition of self-deprecation and cleverness and playing with language that reflects a desire to show the underlying fragility behind ideas um, and kind of mess around with concepts and uh, incite a certain sort of playful attitude towards life instead of um, the severity, um, which I don't know where that comes from culturally. Maybe it comes from um, feeling, uh, back in the day, feeling constantly threatened or um, alienated. But cleverness is certainly a type of kindness. There's nothing about it that is um, evil-natured or malicious. It's just a type of play. You know, I wouldn't say that dancing is the opposite of walking. You know, it's sort of, it serves a different purpose entirely, uh, but they don't really impact one another. And I think most of the most clever people I know are also some of the kindest, so I don't really see how... Um, even even the type of cleverness that's abrasive and biting is often true. Uh, and even if there's things we don't want to hear about ourselves, it's good to hear them because there's a reason we don't want to hear them, probably because they're true, right? And if we can, you know, grow up and acknowledge the facts about ourselves that we're embarrassed about and make fun of them and play with them, that lifts a weight off of us. Everyone struggles with that, so it's an ongoing quest. But that's its own type of facet of the spiritual journey is not taking the self too seriously and learning to joke around. It's odd how... Well, it's not odd. I mean, we live... You know, the this sort of culture that has emerged over the past couple decades of people being becoming offended by everything uh, is reflective, I think, of a certain spiritual vacancy that has maybe made people more and more terrified of death, terrified of the unknown, terrified of suffering, and terrified of nature. And, you know, when we're terrified of reality, we recoil to um, its stark depiction. So when someone says something that's offensive but true, or someone says something that's witty but unkind, precisely because it's true and one doesn't want to admit it's true, there's sort of a cognitive dissonance that occurs that um, creates this reaction, which is an anti, that's an anti-spiritual reaction. And, you know, I would argue that if more people were to discover um, today, to, to rediscover spirituality and religion uh, as it's intended to be used by humans, which is as a this this kind of journey for a higher type of understanding, um, life becomes less serious, not more serious, and life becomes more clever and more witty, and more goofy and more stupid, um, and you take yourself less seriously, and you avoid those doctrinal interpretations of ideas that cause people to 
tense up, you know, the same way that the Puritans tensed up and become, you know, insulted or upset about everything. Because that's a, that's sort of this, you know, if we're thinking of things in abstract terms, that's the equivalent to being trapped in this, um, well, the, the psychedelic writers in the 60s like to call it Chapel Perilous. Robert Anton Wilson and Terence McKenna and Timothy Leary and those guys. You know, I'm not, like a, I'm not a big fan of drugs, but those guys called that concept Chapel Perilous, which is when you're stuck in between the real and the unreal, uh, sort of trapped in this cyclone of concepts that you believe to be true. You know, no matter what side of the religious, political, whatever spectrum you're on, if you're stuck in that um, purgatory, it's hard to um, not take everything seriously because you're stuck, you know. <laughs> it feels very dire. But um, cultivating a healthy spiritual practice, I think, helps to push you a little, just, a, just enough, give you that little extra boost into the... Um, quote-unquote spirit realm where everything's a joke and nothing is serious and everything is playful and everything is peaceful um, and death is no doesn't matter you know there's nothing to worry about so on that note um, it'll take me a few weeks to really get back in the groove of this but I'm going to keep putting these up and I look forward to your continued support and feedback and thank you for listening uh, my name is Charlie Ambler. This is the Daily Zen Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at, at Daily Zen. And um, <laughs> my cat has run so much that she's now sticking her tongue out and panting, which I couldn't help but laugh at. I apologize. Um, and please, uh, if you can, subscribe and leave a review of this podcast on iTunes because that helps me after my um, hiatus get back in the shuffle of things. Okay. Thanks. Bye.